Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies, excellencies, and gentlemen. Welcome and thank you to all our distinguished experts for joining our discussion today about financial markets and myths about investing in women-led businesses. Many thanks to the Permanent Mission of Sweden for hosting today's event with UNCDF. We are looking forward to an engaging discussion on the challenges women-led businesses face and what investors, advisors, asset owners, and consumers can do to break down some of these barriers. We'll start with opening remarks from Ambassador Anna Karin Enestrom, permanent representative of the Mission of Sweden to the United States. Ambassador, the floor is yours. Thank you uh, so much, Esther, and uh, Executive Director, dear Pretty, distinguished panelists, dear colleagues and friends. It gives me great pleasure to host today's uh, event together with the UNCDF. The lack of gender equality is, of course, not a new phenomenon. But a year over a year into the pandemic, we know that the past year has increased the gender equality gap by a full generation according to the Global Gender Gap from World Economic Forum. So far, the response to the pandemic has reinforced this development. Out of more than 3,000 recovery actions that have been registered in the UN's tracker for global gender response, less than half took gender equality into account. The majority of the actions that did focused on combating the increased rate of sexual and gender-based violence against women. Eradicating SGBV is, of course, key for achieving gender equality, but it's to a large extent rather a symptom of the imbalance of power between men and women and not the root cause. By contrast, few recovery actions have been directed towards the economic empowerment of women an action that in itself could have preventive effects against sexual and gender-based violence. Connected to this, little focus has been directed at finding ways to redistribute the increased hours of unpaid care work that has fallen on women during the pandemic. Thus, necessary perspective, perspectives that would have provided a comprehensive approach to recovery measures have been lost. The UN reports that women only represent 24% of the members of COVID response task forces around the world. In 26 countries, these groups are consisting by men only. Today's conversation shows that the importance of naming the invisible barriers that deny women equal access to investment. The disconnect between the proven capability of women-led businesses and available financing opportunities must be laid bare as a central step in our common goal of ensuring women's economic empowerment. Since 2016, CEDA has coordinated the Swedish investor, Investors for Sustainable Development, a partnership with 20 of the largest financial actors in this, on the Swedish market. Through these partnerships, Swedish investors contribute to a number of the sustainable development goals, including goal five on achieving gender equality and empowering women and girls. As part of their work to promote gender equality, the network recently surveyed Swedish and international uh, investors to better understand how they work with gender equality. 
They found that while the majority of the investors had internal targets and policies for gender equality, significantly fewer required the same for the portfolio companies. If only half of the world's available talent have a chance to develop and engage in society and the labor market, it will have huge bearings on sustainable growth, competitiveness and future readiness of economic and businesses worldwide. These issues need to be addressed and I'm looking forward to hear perspectives from the panel today and to follow the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ambassador. In addition to being a global champion of gender equality and human rights, Sweden is also a consistent and longstanding supporter of UNCDF's work in the least developed countries. So we are very grateful for Sweden's support to these issues and our work. Now we'll turn to our distinguished panel. We are very honored today to be joined by Preeti Sinha, UNCDF's Executive Secretary, Sonia Gardner, co-founder, president, and managing director of Avenue Capital, a global asset management company with roughly $10 billion in assets under management, and the UNCDF Goodwill Ambassador for Gender Equality and Access to Finance. Sandy Uri, chairman emeritus and former CEO of Cambridge Associates, a global investment platform and advisor to foundations, endowments, and family offices, and Malin Melmström, Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Lulea University of Technology in Sweden, whose research examines gender bias in investment decisions. A very warm welcome to all of you. Preeti, let's start with you. You recently joined UNCDF as Executive Secretary after a long career in finance. Why is it so important to get investment finance into the hands of female entrepreneurs, especially in the least developed countries? Thank you, Esther, and thank you, Ambassador, for those opening comments. I'm delighted to be here with my co-panelists. So as Esther said, I've recently joined UNCDF, and I really believe in the mission that CDF has in terms of the LDCs. We work with the 46 LDCs, and we want to work with women there. And what we find with women entrepreneurs, women businesses, access to finance, that it holds True for the LDCs, the same statistics I think we will see in this panel that holds in the developed markets, that not sufficient funding is going to the women entrepreneurs. There are barriers, socioeconomic barriers. There is a bias that needs to be overcome. And that's why this panel is so important that we can put these issues on the table and really address them. So for me, the reason why it's so important to invest in women-led businesses, women form the pivot of the family. The moment you impact the woman and she's economically empowered, immediately you see the impact on the health and education of her family members. So just taking a social dimension, let's jump into the economic factors. So I'd like to focus perhaps on women entrepreneurs in the emerging markets, particularly the LTCs. So I'll give you some examples of the work we've done to set the scene. And I know colleagues will come in with other statistics that will justify this position. So, for example, in 2018, UNCDF, along with UN Women and UNDP, we funded around 25 localized investments in women entrepreneurs in the LDCs, which unlocked 3.5 million in financing for these companies. The amount might seem small, but it's a start. And sometimes the investment size in these countries are smaller, and we are working to address that. Another project was in the Pacific, we launched a fintech innovation fund that helped develop digital solutions for women-led micro, small, and medium enterprises. 
A third example is with Artesian Fund. It's a venture fund out of Australia. They've launched together with us an Artesian Women's Economic Empowerment Fund that invests in publicly listed companies that advance women's empowerment. And some of the fees of the management are contributed to UNCDF so we can do more for women in women investment. And finally, in Senegal, we worked with the local sovereign fund of Senegal called Fonsis to again invest in women-led businesses. Now, I think we are doing our role, but here maybe we need to acknowledge some statements like when women are running businesses, women entrepreneurs have known to manage funds better than other teams and a diverse or at least a mixed fund-led team performs better than perhaps an all-male team. This came out in a Goldman Sachs study when they looked at around 546 publicly managed funds and the mixed team, or at least which had one-third women fund managers, performed better than an all-male team. Routinely, we see that women-led businesses are not only profitable, but they are more sustainable. Somewhere they manage to go through cycles in a better, more resilient manner. And the same is true for investor returns from women-led businesses. And I would uh, perhaps refer to uh, examples that uh, Harvard has done as well. There was a study in the Harvard Business Review that we see firms that increase the number of female partners by 10% experienced a 1.5% increase in fund returns year on year, plus 9.7% more profitable exits. But I know my distinguished partners and colleagues on the panel will give us more information on that. I'd just like to, again, going back to the emerging markets, we find that, for example, in UNCTAD report, it's a partner UN agency, that when women are financed in the field of agriculture, in LDCs, that the yields of the farms increase by 20 to 30% when they had the access to the same productive resources as men. So I think maybe I'll leave you with that flavor of why we are interested in the work we do, and we really feel that we would like to increase the access to finance for women in the LDCs. Thank you. Thank you very much, Preeti, for setting the stage and also explaining our focus on LDCs for this audience. Sonia, let's come to you next. What lessons from your investment career convinced you that we needed to fight for gender equality and access to finance? I want to say that I'm honored to be on a panel with the ambassador and, and such a distinguished group of women. So thank you for having me. I began working in finance in 1986, which was over 35 years ago. And I've seen that gender inequality is prevalent really across virtually every aspect of a woman's life. There are so few women in finance in leadership roles or positions of power, and that stems from actual bias and unconscious bias. I can say that 35 years ago, I was literally the only woman in the room at virtually every meeting with senior professionals. And although that has changed, the numbers have really not improved that much. Women need to have influential roles in the financial sector in order to advocate for equal access and inform effective policy changes, and that's true globally. I built Avenue with my brother, 
and didn't face many of the systemic problems most women face in rising through the ranks. But I saw firsthand what many women faced at other firms. I was also on the board for many years of 100 women in finance, as, as was my colleague, Sandy Uri. And that grew from 100 women 20 years ago to over 20,000 members today. And I also had the honor of serving as the chair of the board. We created so many programs and, and what I found to be very important was mentorship programs. Young women need to see that women can be in influential roles and can be senior women so that they are motivated to enter the world of finance and really foster their careers. McKinsey estimates that if women contributed to GDP at the same pace as men, it could add $28 trillion to global GDP by 2025. This is just one of the reasons why we need to improve the pipeline for women to reach senior levels and to build a system that supports women in finance, women-led funds, and financing for women entrepreneurs. Access to finance in the least developed countries is a far bigger problem, and these women are often vulnerable and underserved. We really could talk for hours just about the systemic problems women face and, and the lack of access to finance. But the important thing is that many people and many important organizations are really focused on, on this issue. And I'm optimistic that changes are being made and UNCDF in particular will help to provide women greater access to finance. Thank you, Sonia. And this is a good time to mention that through Sonia's intervention for us, UNCDF has just concluded an agreement with 100 Women in Finance, and we will be helping that organization expand its membership network across the world, particularly in Africa, but also in countries like Sweden. So we'll be working with our colleagues there to help expand those mentorship opportunities to women in finance around the world. All right, Sandy, we'll come to you next. From the perspective of an advisor to large asset owners, what barriers did you see in your career to diversifying the pool of funds and fund managers your company, Cambridge Associates, would recommend? Well, let me echo um, the comments of how honored I am to be part of this panel with um, the ambassador and the distinguished panelists and friends, Sonia among them. I have been in, in business in, in the finance and investment business since 1985. And at that time I joined Cambridge Associates and I joined a firm that actually had women as managing directors. And one of the reasons I joined Cambridge Associates at the time was because you can't be what you can't see sometimes. And what I could see when I joined were women who were achieving at a very high level in, a, in arguably quite a small firm at the time, 40 people. So I feel quite privileged that I found a place that had already um, realized that 100% of the talent resides with 100% of the population, to echo the ambassador's comments uh, about talent. So what did I discover when I, when I joined as an advisor to uh, institutional investors? I discovered that the historical norms of white maleness in the investment 
business and the finance business were deeply, deeply rooted. You just have to think about history. You can think about the United States. Our, our constitution ratified in 1789, women did not get the vote until 1920. We can see that history, the, these biases, unconscious and conscious, come from a long, long historical record. And it's important, and I viewed it as important, and so did my colleagues, to challenge those historical norms. Easier said than done. When you walked into investment committee rooms as an advisor, like Sonia, I was often the only woman in the room as an outsider, not as not as a steward or a fiduciary for the assets, but as a trusted advisor for the assets. And it was not surprising at the time, given who was attracted to the industry and who the industry hired and how many women were in business schools and how you have to look at the pipe. If you looked at the pipeline, there weren't many women coming through that pipeline, nor were the organizations set up to be hospitable to the women who entered those organizations. And even today, when you see the ent entering classes, let's say at um, a major commercial bank or a major investment bank, and it might be 50-50, male and female entering, five years later, it is not 50-50. So the organizations need to step back and say, what are we doing wrong here? Why are we losing this talent? For me, the notion that you would recruit from the total pool was always, where's the talent? It's everywhere. It's in women. It's in people of color. It's in white men. You know, And it was such a waste, I thought, to recruit women at a 50-50 level and then lose them after you had spent four, five years investing in their, in their development only to have them leave because the culture was inhospitable. But these are longstanding historic norms and the, it's incumbent upon not just the women in these organizations or the people of color, but it's incumbent upon the men to say, we want the best talent. The way we're going to be successful over the long term is if we draw from the entire population to, to accomplish that. So I think there is bias, unconscious and conscious bias that has existed over a very long time. There has not been an investment in the pipeline to develop uh, and retain and promote people into some senior positions. And to some extent, I don't think there's really been a high value placed on and inclusion. And I think people think they're playing it safe, but they're thinking very short term and not over the long term. So I think there've been a number of factors that have, have created this. And then when we think about the pandemic and how many people have been, how many women in particular have been affected by this pandemic, we have a, we have a steeper climb now as a result of the last 14 months that we faced in both developed and emerging economies. It's global. And, uh, and so those of us who value this, we need to be willing to speak up and we need to bring others along with us. And, and I'll say a little bit more about that later, about what I think can be done. But I think that we can't ignore history, but we have to challenge history. Thank you so much, Sandy. And we definitely will come back to you later to hear what you did as a leader of an organization to build those networks and that structure in a more welcoming way. So Malin, now we'll, we'll turn to you. You've done extensive research on the impact of gender on investment decisions, including on the effect of gendered language on decision-making and the cognitive processes of venture capitalists as they assess female founders. What have you found in your research? Thank you. And first of all, thank you for being part of this uh, very interesting panel debate. And I'm very honored to be part of with the ambassador and with all your other distinguished guests. So thanks. First of all, we 
based our results on uh, interviews that we did with venture capitalists about the female and male entrepreneur who had presented their investment proposals to them. And by doing this, we could identify four stereotypical gender notions about risk, growth, resources, and performance. So in the eyes of the venture capitalists, I mean, it was really evident that they believed that women are cautious and risk averse, whereas men are ambitious and risk taking. And second, that women are reluctant to grow their businesses, whereas men are willing to do so. And third, that women do not have resources to engage in high growth, whereas men do. And fourth, that women's ventures underperform, whereas men's ventures perform well. And these stereotypical notions of risk, resources, growth and performance led us to ask, where do they come from? And to try to answer this, we analyzed the investment proposals to see if women and men express their proposals differently. So we used a validated dictionary of entrepreneurial terms, including uh, innovation, risk, uh, autonomy, proactiveness and competitive aggressiveness, which is generally seen as qualities that is needed to be a good investment proposal. And we found no statistical difference in how women and men express their investment proposals. So these notions wasn't supported by the investment proposals. So this led us to further our search and look at the venture capitalist side instead. So we went behind the scenes and sat in the closed rooms where the venture capitalists make assessment and take decisions of whom to finance. And we recorded all that was said during a period of two years. And during this period, they discussed over 200 investment proposals from men and women entrepreneurs. And we found that the venture capitalists used a gendered language in how they assess women and men that portrayed male entrepreneurs as the real entrepreneurs, but not women. And... I think I should give you some examples of how we came to this conclusion. Well, first of all, we found that more positive attributes were used to describe uh, men compared to women. Men were described with 71% of positive attributes and 29% negative attributes, while the opposite was evident among, among women, only 25% of the attributes were positive and the majority, 75% of the attributes were negative, which show an overall bias in how women and men are framed in the assessments. Further, also, the same attribute could be used but with different meaning. Young men were described as young and promising, while young women were described as young and inexperienced and lacked knowledge of the market. The term cautious is another example. It was positive for men because if they were cautious, they were sensible and level-headed. But it was negative for women because they were viewed as they didn't dare. Men were also described with an identity as an entrepreneur, a business owner, an inventor while women were only referred to as her, which gave men legitimacy uh, in their professional roles, but not the women. Men were also described with much more superlatives than women, such as very competent, extremely talented, and really brilliant. And this also underscores men's abilities in contrast to women. 
Men were also described in active form as does and can, while women were um, presented as uh, in passive form as is and has, which also positioned men as doers. And men were described with much more attributes related to innovation and development, which is also central to entrepreneurship. So overall, these gendered language structures that portray men and women differently underscore these four gender stereotypical notions of risk, resources, growth and performance. To give you some food for thought. So we made two prototypes or personas based on the results that we found. So who would you invest in? Would you invest in a male entrepreneur that was described as young and promising, arrogant, but very impressive competence, aggressive, but a really good entrepreneur, experienced and knowledgeable, very competent innovator and already has money to play with, cautious, sensible and level-headed, extremely capable and very driven, educated engineer at a prestigious university and has run businesses before. Or would you invest in the female entrepreneur described as young but inexperienced, lacks network contacts and in need of help to develop her business concept, enthusiastic but weak, experienced but worried, good-looking and careless with money, too cautious and does not dare, lacks ability for venturing and growth, visionary but with no knowledge of the market. So what we say and express do influence our perception of risk and investment potential. So thank you. Thank you so much, Malin. That's fascinating. And I think that was a really excellent example of the historical norms that Sandy is talking about, mm -hmm. the gender bias that Sonia is talking about. We know that it's putting really concretely the challenge that women are facing when they're going in to pitch for money. We know in the United States, it's only 2.8% of all venture capital dollars mm -hmm. are given to women. And now we start to see some of the concrete reasons why. So it's both maddening, but also very encouraging for what we need to combat here. Okay, excellent. So Sonia, as we come back to you, how do limited partners and general partners approach the challenge of investing in women-led businesses and investment firms? And what potential solutions could be adopted to encourage more investment by this type of investors? I found those statistics and, and that research very interesting because it actually is exactly why women-led funds have a hard time raising money. I mean, what's interesting is that there are so many large pension funds that have designated pools of capital that are earmarked to invest in minority and women-led businesses. And the problem is that that capital just never reaches the women-led funds. And, and the reasons are, I mean, one of the interesting things from your research is that many of these women don't have enough capital to actually pass the test of having a pension fund provide capital for them because a pension fund cannot give capital to someone that has 20 or $30 million. They, they can't be a large percentage. Women also have a problem showing a track record. It's a very circular problem. And so what ends up happening is that they will check the box, so to speak. And I'm not saying this you know, as a general rule, but there are women-led funds 
but not that many that do have capital. And what happens is those just get larger and larger. And then there are funds that are led by women, but they actually invest in funds that are led by men. But yet it checks the box that it's a women-owned business because it's over 50%. So that has been a, a problem for a number of years. And, and really, I think a lot of women have complained about this, women in, in finance and in, in this business. And really, there has been no solution, so to speak. But really, what needs to happen is that the to check the box, the list of what large pensions or even smaller family offices or what have you, that they need to take the risk that a woman who is talented and has shown, even with a small amount of capital, that they know what they're doing, they can invest the capital, and they've shown a track record, maybe with not that much capital, but still... And, and it's what you were saying before, right? A, a man might be viewed as young and promising and, and a woman-led business is still viewed as risky or they don't have enough experience or what have you. I mean, I do think that because diversity is such an important issue for so many corporations and, and pensions and, and everyone at this point, and, and it's very high profile in terms of what is a corporation or what is a pension fund doing to solve this problem and how much of their capital is really not only earmarked, but how much of it is actually being put to work. I do think that the stringent requirements will be loosened a bit in in terms of you have to have a certain amount of capital for us to invest in you and you have to have X number of years of a track record, because that's really the only way for more women-led asset managers to really get off the ground. And, and one thing that I have seen done is you could have founders equity or seed capital equity. So if someone provides a large amount of capital in the beginning, they would own a piece of the general partner. And, and so by having that as an incentive, which again, does have some risk attached to it, and you have to believe that the person will ultimately be successful, but I have seen more and more of that. So hopefully that will continue to improve. And Sonia, I just wanted to follow up on a comment you'd made previously, which is that the best way to launch a fund is to have a great track record managing money somewhere else. Are you seeing any improvement in the numbers of new fund managers that are women coming from managing money at other uh, bigger shops? And one of the one of the problems with that is that there are a lot of rules about taking a track record with you. And so even if you were the number one or maybe the number two person at another firm, many firms do not allow you to take the track record because they view that as that belongs to the corporation, not to the individual. But yet everyone knows the reputation of certain people and you can discuss your track record and maybe you know, give a few examples, but it's not something that can be published in a pitch book. So, 
yes, does it help to be able to talk about it? Sure. But unfortunately, you don't see a lot of people that have the ability to, to really publish a track record from another firm. Thank you. All right, Sandy, we're going to come to you now. What role can advisors play in breaking down these barriers that we've been discussing for new and diverse fund managers? And please do also tell us more about what you did during your time leading Cambridge Associates to build and nurture a pipeline of diverse talent. I'll echo some of Sonia's comments. I think advisors have a really important role to play. And and I should start out by saying that it is really hard to find good managers that have the ability to uh, perform in a sustainable way, outperform the markets, no matter what population they come from. You need to have depth and breadth in due diligence, and you need to be examining the total the total population. Um, but I think it's so hard. It's a hard task right from the start. And I'd say that the first thing that an advisor has to do, and one of the things that we did was we felt we had to have a diversity in our own organization, that we had to have men and women uh, and people of color doing the research, that if you only have a group of men doing the research, of course they will be biased, whether consciously or unconsciously, towards the men. So building a research platform and a research team that in fact is diverse and brings diverse perspectives to the to the task is, is really important as a starting point. You can't expect the managers to be accountable for diversity if you're not accountable yourself as an organization. So you have to look in the mirror and say, do we value it? Do we think it's important? Do we think that better decisions get made and better outcomes occur when there's a diverse team. And it could be an all-woman team, but when there's diversity of perspective and diversity of opinion. Men absolutely have an advantage. They have the networks. They've had the wealth creation. They can have their seed capital from friends and family. Women and wealth creation, has it's newer. So women don't have the networks and they don't have the wealth. Those two things go hand in hand. And oftentimes they have not had a chance to become the key investment decision makers in the organizations from which they are launching their funds. And this issue of portable track record is absolutely, has been an impediment. But there are ways to get around that. First of all, if you've been following that predecessor manager for a long time as a research team, as maybe we have, who's doing the work, who's producing their returns. And so when the spin out occurs, you know exactly which analyst has been the star analyst, and it could be a man or it could be a woman, but you can have confidence that even if the track record is not portable, that that person has contributed significantly to the outcomes of the predecessor firm. And so having a commitment to research, investing in both the people and the resources can give you insights that um, can go beyond some of the more traditional metrics that were used in the past. But you have to make it a strategic priority. For example, at Cambridge Associates right now, we follow quite a few managers and we've integrated diverse metrics into all of our research on managers. And what we're doing is we're saying we want to double the amount of money our clients have in diverse managers. And this would be women and people of color. So right now, about $19 billion is invested uh, across our client base. And by 2025, we want it to be $40 billion. And that's what we're working on. We're, but we have to find the managers and we have to do the due diligence. And we have to persuade our clients with whom we've partnered for many years that it's not risky. It's not risky. Or you can control the risk by allocating a smaller amount of money. To the manager to start. And then as you become more confident, you can give more. So you have to, I'd say it's sourcing, 
you have to figure out where we're going to find these managers. You have to attend conferences where these managers are featured. And there's outreach is critical. Can't wait for people to just come and knock on your door. You have to be out there looking and seeking a, a broader population. You have to have an open door policy. Any manager that knocks on the door, you have to say, yes, we'll meet with you. Send us your materials. We'll meet with you. And sometimes some managers, both men and women, are not ready for prime time, as I say. And then you have to partner with them. Be an ally. Be transparent. Give them feedback. Help them understand what will enable them to meet the hurdles. But you also have to be willing to suspend some of the traditional hurdles. You just have to meet the individuals, understand what they've done in the past, understand what their investment philosophy is. Is it one that your clients would find find appealing and attractive. So it's a it's an issue of sourcing resources, due diligence, and then being persuasive when you're talking to the uh, fiduciaries and the stewards of the assets, because it's easy to play it safe, so to speak, easy to go with what you know. Actually, when Malin was speaking, I wondered if the people who were having those conversations were groups of male GPs and the gendered language was coming out of a group of men as opposed to women and female GPs, because I think the language might be different if you had diversity of GPs evaluating the entrepreneurs. So it's a process where there's intellectual rigor, but there's also an open-mindedness that you bring to the table. And then there has to be a strategic commitment on the part of the advisor. There absolutely has to be a strategic commitment. And the advisor itself, the organization like ours, has to has to embrace, embrace it at the organizational level, not just at what we practice, but what we actually do in our own enterprise. So those are just some quick thoughts off the top of my head, but these are things we're doing and the results are there. We see it. We see a growing group of diverse managers attracting capital. And the more that happens, the the higher the degree of comfort for the fiduciaries who are investing. Now, Cambridge, as you mentioned, we deal with mission-driven organizations. So we start with a, a group of investors that care, that, that really do want to, that do seek alignment and how they're managing their money with what their missions are. So we, we, we have a little bit of an edge there and are pushed hard by the um, investors whom we serve. Thank you so much, Sandy. And I think even the fact that you know exactly how much you have right now invested in diverse managers and you have a clear target to double that makes Cambridge not only public about its commitment, but then quite transparent and accountable for reaching that figure. So thank you for that. All right. So Preeti, we'll turn to you next. What do you see as the opportunity of investing in female-led firms in LDCs? We've heard a lot about the barriers that are facing women-led firms here in developed. So please tell us a bit about that. Thank you, Esther. Really uh, reflecting on the rich conversation going on here. But again, maybe turning the needle uh, towards the emerging markets, Africa alone has about $42 billion in investment opportunity for women-led businesses. Uh, This is based on our work and our survey in those economies. So large opportunity there. But having said that big uh, opportunity line, uh, the challenges remain. What happens, uh, we see in our experience is that there's a lack of gender responsive regulations and laws in several countries. So sometimes the microfinance or the digital uh, services don't have that uh, inclusiveness in their policy regulations. In that respect, uh, women face higher interest rates. They have to often give more collateral and they have a higher loan rejection rate. So all these factors we know, but there are things that we have to overcome. And hopefully the data here is now going to start to support that. So what we do at our work at CDF is we also provide a lot of technical assistance and advisory work. 
to help uh, build these women-led businesses up from the ground up to make them really solid businesses. And reflecting on what Sonia said regarding the pension funds, we had a conversation uh, earlier as well uh, about ETFs on uh, women businesses. And I think the big money will only move when they see very good opportunity. And perhaps that is very secured with uh, a number of guarantee, guarantee structures built in as well. So maybe at this phase, we'll have to provide a bit of handholding with very capable women entrepreneurs, but there's a role for agencies and all the people on the panel and in our different roles. For example, going back to the 138 private equity firms that invested with a gender lens, so they invested around $4.8 billion in 2019 in businesses that were more diverse uh, and had um, positive impact on women. And this figure is up from 2.2 billion in 2018 and from 1.1 billion in 2017. So money is starting to move, but what we are trying to do is also provide the pipeline. So we are working with countries, with the Uganda, Tanzania, et cetera, to come up with great investment opportunities for women and what structures and guarantees would be needed to bring them to the table as very viable investment opportunities. So the fact uh, that we have this gender metrics in our lending, so we have an on-balance sheet lending called the bridge facility, uh, which we would like to grow, and that has gender metrics in it when we lend. So we do loans and guarantees from that. We are also very much a believer in blended uh, finance, which obviously brings uh, the ODA donor capital along with commercial capital with social and financial returns. And as you know, we have a build fund that invests in SMEs in, in the LDCs and emerging markets. And finally, we also have a municipal investment fund, a 350 million euros target fund that will invest in municipal projects, including initiatives like something called Inclusity. Inclusity is an initiative that makes cities safer for women. So these are some of the aspects uh, that we are working with. We're trying to introduce gender screening into the criteria, and I I would encourage that uh, to happen more. This can be uh, debated, but I'm told that only 5% of bilateral aid was aimed at gender equality in 2018, 2019, and 55% of ODA did not uh, reflect the objective. So perhaps this has, of course, changed, but that's the direction we want to go in. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Preeti. So as Preeti mentions, UNCDF is trying to address the pipeline problem. We hear from a lot of investors that they don't see enough investable projects, that the projects don't meet their standards. As Sandy mentioned, you have to do a lot of nurturing of potential and prospects to meet them, to get them to a point where they can meet investor standards. So UNCDF is doing that in LDCs. So Malin, coming back to you, we're hearing about a lot of these challenges and you've really you know, laid out very well the biases that we women face when they're raising money, but what does the research show about the actual performance of companies led by women? Yes, well, in our research, we wanted to see if there was any substance to these four gender stereotypical notions that I talked about previously, about risk, resources, growth, and performance. So to test this, we collected accounting data for the exact same businesses that the VCs talked about to explore how the ventures performed at the time, point in time when they presented their investment proposals to the venture capitalists. And we compared over 20 different key performance indicators to mirror the essence of these four gender stereotypical notions uh, in different ways. And what we found was no statistical 
difference whatsoever between women's and men's venturings. So that means that women and men did not differ in the ways of taking risks in their venturing, the ways of growing their businesses, the resources they used for all the financial performance they reached uh, in their venturing. So we found no support for these four gender stereotypical notions. However, what we found in our results was the effect of these gender stereotypical notions because uh, women's investment proposals were dismissed to a significantly higher extent compared to the male proposals. And those women who uh, were approved capital also gained less capital, significantly less capital than the male counterparts. That's fascinating, Malin. So you're telling us that women and men-led ventures that you studied performed exactly the same, but women had a harder time raising money. And when they did raise money, they got less. Yeah. So at every point, then, there are challenges to then the unleashing this potential that we're seeing from female-led businesses. Sonia and Sandy, I'd like to go back to you. Uh, you had mentioned that this problem of scale, that it's hard for women to get enough assets, and then it's hard for them to show the track record, so that's harder for them to be, get selected. What types of finance do you think would be more willing to take the risk on these types of managers? Sandy, you mentioned that some of the restrictions will have to be lowered. We know that pension funds are extremely risk-averse, and they're probably not the ones to take the first risk. So which investors should we be targeting when we're looking at trying to get more money into the hands of women-led businesses? Sonia, over to you. Well, I think, and Sandy has a lot more experience in terms of what the allocators are, are actually choosing to do. But from my experience, I think working with family offices is much easier. They tend to be small, the family makes the decision with usually they have a, a CIO from the outside, but, but sometimes not. And there's just less bureaucracy. So for them, investing in a business or investing in a woman-led fund or minority-led fund or you know even, even male-led fund, where they can get a piece of the equity and really share in the upside, right? Because if you decide that you're going to give $100 million, I mean, just using that as, as an example, to a fund that is just starting out and you get a what you believe is a fair piece of the equity. And then five years later, they turn out to be a billion dollars or a billion five. And, and so that was a, a great investment in terms of the founder's equity, but also you've made a lot of money on the hundred million that you initially invested in. So I think that that is something that we are hearing more about. And, and another thing is that women led funds and also male led funds and minority led funds, because it is so expensive to create a back office, to really have your own business. What we find is that a lot of people approach us and I'm sure they're approaching a lot of large institutions that already have that infrastructure in place, and they will ask to join a firm, but yet retain some autonomy and make a name for themselves with a larger organization. And then as Sandy had said before, when there is a spinoff, everyone knows who really did the work, right? If you're in this business, it's really the track record is for people who don't follow all these investors and, and don't really know much about the individuals. But 
I do think that that people are being more just more really in in terms of flexible to see how can we create a situation where these talented women, talented minorities actually do get capital and and it works for both parties. Sandy? Just to build on on Sonia's comments about the types of investors, in my experience, we have seen that it's the family offices and the foundations that have really led the way when thinking about, I call it mission alignment. And mission alignment can uh, manifest itself in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It could be climate, it could be uh, social justice issues. It can be any any number of things, but, but the foundations have stepped back and said, why should only, in the US, there's a 5% distribution requirement for foundations. And they've said, why should only 5% of our assets be working on what our mission is through our grant making and the other 95% of our assets be investing in things that run counter to what our, our, our charitable mission is. So we've seen foundations step back and say, how can we how can we fix this? How do we think about this differently and, and how we invest our money? So more and more of them might be creating what you might think of as a carve out. The Ford Foundation notably was quite public in carving out a billion dollars of their $11 billion investment pool to invest in more mission aligned activities. It's And they've created an investment subcommittee to, to work on that over the next 10 years. So we see carve outs happening. We see it happening in a very integrated way. Family offices absolutely have a different set of restrictions. They're the principal owners of the money. They're not fiduciaries. So the way boards of trustees are fiduciaries and fiduciaries do have to follow uh, guidelines, prudent investor guidelines and are chartered by the states in which they reside in the United States. So they are I guess you could say restricted or constrained in in some ways. And historically, that constraint has shown itself by them thinking there are lower returns if you invest in something that is mission aligned. We have to prove that wrong. And I get very tired of hearing this when I can see really good managers who meet the mission alignment requirements and there is no give up on the return side, but you have to do the due diligence. You have to find them. In the family office setting, you can make a commitment and you can say, well, we'll take below market returns. Some have explicitly said that in order to funnel capital to underrepresented managers. Some have done exactly what Sonia referenced, providing seed capital to be a partner at the table in establishing the firm. Some investors, one thing to keep in mind is there's an enormous transfer of wealth going on to women, and to the next generation. And women make choices differently. And the next generation of investors, third, fourth generation wealth, are applying different criteria to how they think about investing their families' funds. So there, there's movement that's coming from the new, new family members who are seated at the table and who actually control where the money's, money's going. Sometimes they bump up against trustees who say, no, 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 no. But but ultimately, they are the principals. It's their money. So they can make these decisions. And this transfer of wealth will create a flow of funds, I believe, and we're seeing it, to managers that are more representative of the individuals who are now seated at the table making decisions as to where those funds get allocated. We're seeing it in other investors. Sonia's right. There's a scale issue here. There are billions and billions and billions of dollars. So here, I think what we're seeing some of the large pension funds doing is saying, we'll carve out, let's say, $500 million, and we don't have the staff to do the due diligence required 
to really allocate that. So they'll hire an outside advisor and it could be a fund of funds manager. It could be creating a customized fund of funds with an advisor. So we're seeing more of that. And, and so there is a resource constraint that many investors have and, and it, it causes them to partner you know, with others out there in the field in order to get the assets allocated. But we see it happening and, and we, we just have to disabuse people of the notion that doing that investing with these underrepresented populations necessarily leads to lower returns. It doesn't. If you do the heavy lifting and you do the work and you do the due diligence, the talent is there. The investment talent is there. You have to find it. And it's hard work. As I said, it's hard work to find good managers no matter what population they're coming from. Thank you so much, Sandy. And then Malin, uh, let's come to you. So it, it seems like your research is showing that the talent is there, that female-led firms are performing just as well as men. So what suggestions do you have for breaking down some of these barriers that you're finding in your research? How do we shift the discussion and make the analysis of women-led firms and their performance more equal? I think there are a number of things that we can do. And I think that if we use research to show facts, I think we're well on the way. We have a majority of studies that show that women entrepreneurs are overlooked as an investment opportunity. So I think the next step that we need to do is to show the costs of letting gender bias influence uh, investment decisions. To highlight the missed investment opportunity, I think that's a way to spark uh, the interest at the investor side also to see that there are actually missed opportunities. So besides awareness of these costs, I think also, as Sandra mentioned before, there has to be a willingness and a determination to accomplish change. So it's important that managerial support is there and that we set long-term goals of what we want to accomplish and follow up on those goals because what is this uh, measured and followed up also usually gets done in that way. I also think that it's important to strive for an equal balance of women and men in, uh, in powerful positions in uh, the capital market. Because as of now, it's more male-dominated arena and, and I think it's uh, difficult for the individual woman to make a big difference in this situation. We need more balanced groups of those who make the decisions to, to enable to break down the barriers, what happens in these groups. I also think, think that we can learn a lot from the upcoming financial markets in the crowdfunding and the fintech arena. We know that in crowdfunding, more females are also represented as investors. And I think that we also see the effects of that, that more female entrepreneur gets funding in the, in the crowdfunding arena. So I think that that's also an argument for why we should change the structures in the traditional financial market actors. But also I think that we can learn a lot about what is going on in these kind of sectors also for the traditional ones. Thank, Thank you. you, Malin. And I know that when we speak with fund managers and especially women-led VC funds, they talk about how different it is for female entrepreneurs to pitch a panel that has women on it, as opposed to pitching only a group of men who will be assessing whatever their business idea is. So maybe we can come up with some equivalent to when they started doing blind auditions for orchestras, female musicians got hired at much higher levels because suddenly you took away all of the factors besides the performance of the music 
maybe there's some way, Madeline, we could think about creating that for pitch meetings. Ambassador, I'd like to come to you to talk about this idea of money that's willing to take risk. We know that Sweden has been very creative in its use of official development assistance. For example, CETA really pioneered the use of official development assistance funding for loans and guarantees to activate parts of the financial sector that were not accessing finance. So I wonder if you could talk about the decision-making that allowed CETA to take more risk with its development funding, and also if you're seeing any of that flexibility or more openness among other donors. Thank you very much, sir. And can I first say that what a fascinating and really rich discussion this is. I mean, I think, of course, I'm I'm coming from a totally different field than you are, but I'm, I'm really recognizing many of the challenges and the invisible barriers that you are speaking about also in diplomacy. So I, I think it's there are lots of similarities. I mean, I think what, what I want to say first is that changes really take time and that we have worked for a long time to introduce the gender-based decision-making in not only in CEDA, but also in our entire foreign policy. And as you know, we have a feminist foreign policy right now, which means that Every decision that is taken by not only by CEDA and, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but it's actually the entire government is based on a gender lens when you take that decision. Uh, and of course, I mean, CEDA has worked with the gender-based decisions and development cooperation for a long time. And I think that's very much based on the fact that we know, I know Molin referred to research, that Gender equality is not only about giving rights and perspective to women and girls, which is important in itself, but it's actually important for the survival of our planet and humankind that we can simply not afford to not fully utilize 50% of the population of the world. And I think here it's so important when you are discussing the situation in the LDCs. So the decision that CEDA is taking on prioritizing women uh, is very much based on that, that they know how important it is to involve women in all fields. And that is how you actually build sustainability. In the Swedish foreign feminist foreign policies, is built on three R's, resource representation and rights. And I think that you see the linkages between these three. I mean, we have discussed here very much about women's resources and representation, of course, representations in the private sector or in businesses uh, is as important as it is in the political life. So I think this is very much the, the basis for the decision that CEDA is taking to bring in more women, because that is how you build a strong and sustainable future for all countries. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Preeti, I'd like to come to you to talk about, you joined the UN system quite recently, so you have a nice fresh perspective, but you're also coming from finance and the private sector. What is your vision for how UNCDF as a small agency can play a role in driving more finance to women, particularly in LDCs? Thank you, Esther, and uh, let me echo some of my co-panelists. So I had a career in investment banking as well in the early days, in 1994, 95, and I saw those numbers, uh, only one woman associate in the class of MBA, post-MBA entrance into then the investment banks that existed. So I think there is that aspect, and of course, it has to do with even STEM education, etc., but coming to where we're focused again on emerging markets, we've created a tool. It's called the Women Economic Empowerment Index, the WEEI. 
And it is a metric that can be applied to see which firms and investments are more gender responsive, which have more development impact of women. So it has indicators like women's leadership and others. So we are making this available to both public and private investors in the countries we operate, and it could extend to others as well. So that's a tool recently launched a week ago in the FFT forum. So other practical steps we are taking is in our build fund, the blended finance fund, we are creating or would like to really fund the gender window. We would like a specific gender window of blended finance. Finance can flow to women enterprises in these countries, which, of course, we will vet and prepare and hopefully guarantee and make them very robust. But uh, we do trust in the women and we would like the money to follow that trust. So we've got uh, that fund initial 2 million euro from the government of Luxembourg as the first loss, but we would like to seed it further. Uh, further, as you mentioned, let me not uh, move away from the 100 women uh, in finance partnership, which, as I said, reflects my early days as well. So these are women, and uh, Sonia has been on the chair of that board, there are around 20,000 women professionals in finance. And we would like to leverage that network, as you mentioned, particularly for Africa, but across the world, to provide four things, access, mentorship, networking, and opportunities. So these are very critical soft skills in some ways or soft opportunities, but very, very important as all the speakers and panelists reflected. And perhaps a last one is on digital economy. So one of our strong deliveries at CDF is on inclusive digital economies. And we believe by focusing on digital, it will equate the ground further because women can also uh, use the digital infrastructure. So we are leveraging digital finance for women-led and women-managed businesses, supporting public sector to collect and use sex-disaggregated data to make policy decisions on women digital or financial inclusion. And this is true. This is work we are doing in, in terms of policy. And of course, we want to also share the gender disaggregated data on women's utilization of digital services. So uh, those are some practical uh, steps, a toolkit, a blended fund, a digital fund, the 100 Women in Finance Partnership. And I'd maybe like to conclude in some ways by saying I really believe women are critical and pivotal to the SDGs achievement. You know, that whole aspect of the health, uh, social housing, uh, education, women still serve that role as a pivot of the family, therefore pivotal for the SDGs. Thank you so much. Thank you, Preeti. So we have a question in the chat, and this is for all the panelists. Thank you for all this great information. ESG seems to be trending in the finance industry. Do you think it is here to stay? If yes, why? Would it have any impact on increasing access to finance for women entrepreneurs, especially those in LDCs? So this question is about ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors in investing in the finance industry. Sonia, we'll come to you first on this. Sure. That's actually a great question. And it also goes to a little bit of what Sandy was saying, that now the next generation of wealth is making decisions. And I think that this generation cares a lot about ESG and and so do the large pensions. So we raised a large ESG fund a few years ago. And what's interesting is that one of the roadblocks was that people view ESG investing as something that does not provide the same type of returns as other types of investments. Because historically, that 
was the case with some of the early funds that were launched. And what's happened is that that perception has really turned around. And for us in particular, we're doing a a debt fund in ESG investment. And we have found not only foundations, but also large pensions are really viewing the importance of ESG. And And do I think that that will increase the appetite for hiring women managers or more investment in the LDCs? I certainly hope so. And I think that the mandate for a particular fund has to be to also invest abroad in in the LDCs. And what I'm finding right now is that there's a large appetite for investment in the U.S. and, and also in Europe. And not as much, which you know would be obvious for investment in the LDCs, because the risk profile of ESG has only recently in the last maybe five, six years become something that people are viewing as an investment alternative that is not going to provide low returns. Thanks very much, Sonia. Sandy, what's your opinion on ESG? I think ESG is good investing. I think ESG is about risk. And and if you're a long-term investor, you wouldn't want to invest in a company that is doing bad things to the environment. That's a risk. Uh, That's a risk of regulatory uh, intervention. That's a risk to the long-term success of a company. Similarly, a company that is not taking care of all of its stakeholders, maybe only paying attention to its shareholders, but not to its employees, its community, its customers, again, may not be that good an investment. It might be good in the short term for the shareholder, but over the long term, it may not be sustainable and may not be uh, good for the company if they want to be in business for the long term. And don't get me started on governance. (laughs) Governance is essential to running any company. So what I would say is 10 years ago, managers did not self-identify as ESG oriented. Now all managers are saying we embrace ESG. And now the challenge, I think, for those of us in my seat who are doing the due diligence is, are they really doing it? Do they really pay attention to these factors when they're making investment decisions? Or has the groundswell of interest in this been so uh, great that it's a way to gather assets? Uh, But it is hard to incorporate these risk factors into investment decision-making. It's not impossible, and more and more are doing it. And so I think that it's here to stay, but I always thought it was good investing. I never really thought that ignoring these kinds of risk factors made any sense in when a manager was selecting securities. So I think it's here to say, I think it will contribute actually to a greater engagement by women, maybe not necessarily in the asset manager seat, but certainly in the boardroom. And we're already seeing that in terms of the focus on creating more diverse boards to govern companies. And then I believe there will be a ripple effect because the investment decision makers and companies will be bringing diverse points of views and perspectives to the table on how companies are run. That will naturally translate into how asset managers view those companies. And perhaps there'll be a a good ripple effect in terms of the impact on women in finance and investments as well. Thank you, Sandy. I know there has been research showing that when there are women on an asset allocation team, women fund managers are more likely to be funded. So there does seem to be quite a link between representation and decision-making. Malin, have you run into ESG factors in your work and do you think it will have an impact on the issues that you're studying? Well, 
yes, well, I agree with the previous speaker in many ways, but uh, I see some major challenges with the ESG also in the metrics that are used today to measure like gender and participation. And I think that more works need to be put into how we measure this to actually see if we do accomplish what we want to do if we invest or use ESG as a guideline for how to behave in the financial decision making. So I would like to see some more science-based metrics uh, for how to look at gender or the social aspects of the ESG. And Malin, could you give us some examples of the indicators you'd like to see that you think would be more substantive? I mean, not from the top of my head right now, but I do research with algorithms. I'm looking at how previous decision data has influenced gender structures in investment decisions. And I see that there are other factors that we also need to pay attention to because it's not always gender as such that we see the biases arising. It's in other variables that are very closely attached to gender, but we are not really paying attention to it in this aspect. So yeah, I don't have a one good suggestion, but I think that we need to look more closely into these other variables. Thank you. I think I jump in there just to echo Milne's comments. The there are many organizations that are trying to come up with what the right metrics are for measuring impact. And I think there will be a convergence around a methodology, but at the moment Absolutely right. There are too many uh, choices in how to measure. And as Malin said so correctly, what gets measured gets managed and gets paid attention to. So you'll see some companies that rank high in one set of metrics and don't rank very high in another. And so the investor who's trying to embrace an ESG perspective finds it confusing. So we, we need to get to a point where we have better measurement and better metrics in this space. And we've seen quite a lot of movement on this front from the European Commission, and also UNDP has set up a site called SDG Impact, which is giving guidelines to sustainable bond issuers, as well as fund managers. And of course, there are organizations like SASB and GIN, which have good standards, which are improving all the time. So we do see as well here from the UN side that there is movement on this front as well towards unified impact reporting, which would be good for everyone. All right. There are no other questions to our audience members, please don't be shy about asking questions in the chat. We'll come around to the panelists then to say, given our really rich discussion, we've had such an interesting discussion about some of the barriers that female entrepreneurs face when they're pitching for finance, some of the challenges to women in the financial field, the structures and the efforts that are needed from advisors and investors to make sure that they find that they look for and nurture diverse managers as well as diverse talent internally, the importance of setting targets and having accountability for assets and diversity targets that people are setting for themselves, and some of the barriers, but also opportunities offered by female-led businesses in the least developed countries as well. So for our panelists, what are some practical steps that our audience and listeners today can take to encourage more investment in female-led businesses and funds? Kriti, we'll start with you. I think I've used uh, several examples in the past, again, to reiterate, perhaps putting the data out there very clearly. So another touch point, let me add the MSCI World Index, when measures companies with strong women leadership, has an ROE of 10.1% versus that of 7.4% when it's without women leadership. So statistics like that, and then let me differentiate between public capital and private capital. So the 
Public capital is supporting us in lots of initiatives, and Sweden here is a great example of that. And what we're trying to do is get more private capital in. In the investment strategy, there's investing in publicly listed companies. So there, I think the ESG metric is used. We also work a lot with private enterprises, which are developing. So let's say, take in context of Africa, Juma is a publicly listed company, e-retail, whereas we funded a company in Mali, there's a woman who's put up a business on manufacturing fruit juices. So Mali, with the various uh, geopolitical economic um, dimensions right now, we'd like her to grow. So there's more employment opportunity on the ground in Mali. So I think uh, let's substantiate our uh, points with all the data that's there and all the panelists have done that brilliantly. Uh, let's put it out there and let's encourage this investment into women-led enterprises. Thank you. Thank you, Preeti. Malin, what would you recommend? Well, as I said previously, I think that if we can realize that there are actually costs associated with avoiding investing in female entrepreneurship, I think that it's easier to understand the actual potential from doing it and the actual return that you can get in many different dimensions. So I think that if we can have research that would show this and display this, I think that would be very encouraging because I think that people today are becoming more aware of the effects of environment and social aspects and want to make a change. So I think that if we can only give that last push to show what is uh, the gains from it, I think that we are in good shape for making changes. Thank you, Malin. Sandy? I think there's momentum in this space right now. And I think the ability for a a group of investment decision makers, owners of assets, investment decision makers, to step back and clearly define what matters to them. Is it divestment? Is it ESG? Is it shareholder engagement? Is it impact? Or is it all of the above? These are not siloed, but the owners of the assets that are being deployed need to come to consensus on what matters and to recognize that there aren't concessionary returns. If you pursue a thoughtful, well-disciplined, well-defined, with good research and good due diligence, if you follow that path, the results, I think, will address Mellon's issue of we need proof. There is an increasing body of proof about the choices that investors are making, and there's not one right choice. So it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be across the spectrum of choice. I'm very excited about what's going on in impact. And this particularly is in the private. You see this in the private space where entrepreneurs are trying to figure out how to solve some of the biggest challenges we face. And it's men and women who are saying it's climate, sustainable agriculture, water, social justice. And so I'm, I'm quite excited about the emerging body of work, the emerging entrepreneurs that are saying we have problems to solve and they're solution oriented. So impact is an important place to focus, but it's across the spectrum. And the investment decision makers really have to focus on what matters to us and how can we steward these assets in the most responsible way. There'll be good investment opportunities in these spaces. They exist. Thank you so much. And Sonia? I think what I would say to the audience and not knowing whether there are a lot of young people or senior professionals in the audience, I think it's the same message to everyone, which is really to increase awareness of these issues and make it part of your discussion and see what you can do as an individual 
to help create change. I mean, as a very senior person, you can mentor younger people and really make sure that we are doing something to make the world of finance more inclusive for gender, inclusive for minorities, all across the board. And if you're senior enough to be an allocator, then as Sandy said, the investments are good. The data is there. All of the data that Malin shared with us and Preeti, Sandy, everyone, that I think that a lot of people just are not aware of the actual numbers and and the real data. So I think that increasing awareness and making sure that each and every one of us actually does something about this problem. Thank you so much, Sonia. And just as a reminder to our audience that anyone who has an investment fund or a pension can ask their financial provider for gender lens options. That's one thing that anyone can do who has any assets at all, and that we can start looking at how our own money is invested and what it's doing. So before we wrap up, we'll come back to Ambassador Enestrom for her thoughts. Thank you, Esther, and uh, thanks to the entire uh, panel. As I said, it's been really a, a very important, rich, and fascinating discussion, and I'm honored to have been part of it. And it has made me even more understand being encouraged by our strong partnership with you and uh, CDF, really. I think what I want to say as last words is, is really that we need to continue to push this agenda and that we need to do that not only for all the women and girls that are out there. That's an important part, but we need to do it for all of us. And using the phrase of that uh, gender equality is not only morally right, but it's also economically uh, smart. I, I think we need to continue to press for that. And also how important gender equality is for the implementation of the entire Agenda 2030 and the SDGs. And the final remark is, as many of you have said, that gender equality is also about power and that makes us have to fight even stronger for this agenda. So with that, I'd like to thank you very much for being part of this and to the audience, uh, Esther, I give the word back to you, uh, but thanking you in how you have managed uh, this uh, discussion in, I think, uh, a very important and exciting way. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ambassador, and thanks again to the Permanent Mission of Sweden for co-hosting this wonderful panel with us. I think we've all learned quite a lot of both pragmatic tips and also high-level theoretical strategic research background for why it's important to drive more finance into the hands of women. So on behalf of UNCDF, I'd like to thank so much Sonia Gardner, Malin Malmstrom, Sandy Uri, Preeti Sinha, and of course, Ambassador Anna-Karin Enestrom for being on our panel today. Thank you to our audience. This panel will be posted as a podcast on uncdf.org slash podcast. And the recording of it will also be posted publicly so it can be accessed. And please look to our website, www.uncdf.org for that. Thank you so much, everyone, and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.